0: Hey, family, want to thank Pastor Pat Hood for his introduction, invitation, and opportunity to be able to preach to you, Life Point. I'm so grateful for your witness, for your sending culture, and everything that you do in your state, in your city, in your region. Thank you so much. And during this time, I want to come and really remind us of what the mission of the church should really be, and then also think about how we will grasp that particular mission as individuals. If you have a copy of God's word, turn with me to John chapter four. And in John chapter four, I want to use this particular title, the bad Samaritan, to remind us of what our mission is. John chapter four, starting with verse one, I'm reading from the Christian standard Bible. And in the reading of the Bible, it's this. says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Drink. Believe that in John chapter 4, we see a very startling challenge from the path, mission, and methods of Jesus Christ. He's going to engage this woman that we are calling the Bad Samaritan. And versely, as we learned about the Good Samaritan, one who would stop on the path of destruction to save someone he saw in peril, this Bad Samaritan is a woman in need of desperate saving herself. And as we gaze into this particular story, I believe that God is going to motivate us and encourage us on how we should operate in this season to see the gospel go forth. Uh, friends, I have one main point for you at light point, and it is this. Jesus' living water heals our hurt hearts and moves us to the hardest places. Jesus' living water heals our hurt hearts and moves us to the hardest places. As we think about this particular story, I'm reminded of an instance in history of a young monk named Telemachus. This young monk named Telemachus was isolated and doing much of his religious duties and activities, praying and fasting to God on the wayside country until the Holy Spirit began to move on his heart. And the Holy Spirit began to tell Telemachus to go into the ancient city of Rome during that time. Telemachus did not want to go. Because he knew what awaited him in Rome. He began to argue with God. God, I don't want to go to Rome. There's nothing but sin. There's nothing but drunken orgies and all kinds of violence in this city. God, I don't want to go to Rome. The Holy Spirit would not leave Telemachus alone. Began to be a rash on his heart, irritating him to go to Rome. Till finally he goes and he sees what he expected. It is nothing but sin on display. One particular point, Telemachus is actually caught up in a returning crowd that was celebrating a victorious war. And this crowd would allow him to be really ushered into the Colosseum during that day and age. What Telemachus would see would startle him. He would see gladiators mutilating one another, murdering one another, People being slain, they were beautifully created in the image of God. And and Telemachus felt this rush of power by the Holy Spirit, and he would lift up his arms, and he would say, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop it. But a bloodthirsty crowd could not hear Telemachus. In fact, they began to move him out of the way. But Telemachus, still urging to see some type of change, lifted up his arms, got closer to the rail, and said, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop it. And again, no one would pay attention to Telemachus. So Telemachus would jump over the rail, find himself in between two gladiators, and lift up his arms again. And he would say, in the name of Jesus Christ, stop it. it would be at that point that a Colosseum gladiator would thrust his spear at Telemachus, and they would watch his blood splatter out of him onto the sand, and the crowd would watch in shock, and they would leave in awe. And as they would be ushering out, historians tell us that the death of Telemachus was one of the milestones of ending the gladiator games in Rome, all because of one little man in a wayside country followed the leading of the Holy Spirit, and his healed heart pushed him to the hardest places. Friends, as we navigate this pandemic and this crisis, I know that sometimes our temptation is to hide in the cul-de-sac of comfortable Christianity. Think about merely preserving ourselves, but as we think about and participate on what this new normal may be for all of us, and as we think about regathering and reopening many of our sanctuaries across the nation, one of the things we have to begin to ask ourselves is, what does it look like to minister in one of the hardest periods of history we have ever seen? Friends, I want us to be reminded here, like Telemachus, that we have a mission of good news, and we can make significant difference And that Jesus is going to remind us on this path that his living water will heal our hearts and send us to the mission God intended for us. As we peer into this passage, I believe that there are only a couple of primary scenes that we need to gaze upon as we think about what God may have for us as we continue to be a sending church, establishing a sending culture that will reach a sin-sick world. Uh, The first thing I want you to consider is the way that Jesus took. I want you to consider the way in which Jesus traveled and ministered to engage this bad Samaritan. To really grasp the irony of this passage, you have to pay close attention to where Jesus actually goes. says in verse 1, John chapter 4, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Friends, that's important. Notice that Jesus Christ himself is abandoning comfortability and popularity in this text. He's experiencing all kinds of growth. He's noticing that more people are being baptized in his ministry than his cousin predecessor, John the Baptist, and The jealousy begins to invade the hearts of the Pharisees and the religious leaders. They see that Jesus is growing in popularity. They see that John the Baptist is actually preaching against their ministry, and they want to divide and conquer. One of the ways they try to do this is by going to John the Baptist and telling him that Jesus is actually succeeding at higher levels than him. And when he gives this memorable response, John the Baptist does, he says, he must increase and I must decrease. Now they are approaching Jesus and they're approaching Jesus with this idea that he is in competition and now growing in popularity. And Jesus, even though he is growing, forsakes this attention. I know that many ministries that are in existence today would uh, love to be in the possession of Jesus. He's growing, he's outgrowing the church down the street. Many pastors or even churches would set up shops, set up their own uh, merchandise, memorabilia, maybe even raise an offering for a private jet. That's not what Jesus does here. Instead of seeing this growth as an access to God, he sees this access towards a greater mission. And it says that Jesus left Judea. He didn't fight for fame, acclaim, or notoriety. Jesus left the comfortability of Judea to pursue Samaria to continue on God's mission he had for him. Now, could you imagine how the disciples felt during this time? I mean, they're, they're really the groupies of Jesus. They are uh, uh, drinking from the fountain of fame and attention uh, as they see all of this attention gravitate toward Jesus. And Jesus is telling them, we are leaving this hot spot of ministry. Uh, they would say, Jesus, how can we leave? We we just made friends here. We we just set up here. There's a Trader Joe's coming here. There's a Chick-fil-A being built across the street. Jesus, we love it here. Jesus is reminding us through his actions, friends. Listen to me, Life Point. Don't confuse success with assignment. Never settle for popularity over purpose. Mark 8, verse 36 reminds us, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Here is the danger of worldly or material success as a success is no indicator of God's blessing on our lives. Life point, may you be reminded you can't confuse man's endorsement as God's blessing. We're reminded of the scriptures and the Bible. In Matthew chapter four, Jesus is actually tempted with worldly success. Satan takes him to the top of Disney World, shows him the magical kingdoms of the world and says to Jesus, if you would bow down and worship me, I will give you everything. Jesus does not go for the temptation. May we be reminded that in worldly success, Satan always shows us the bait and hides the hook. So let me ask you the question. How do I know if my success is from God or not? Let me ask you this. How comfortable are you in the provision of your success versus the provision of your Savior? Are you at peace because your bills have been paid or because Jesus paid for your sins? Are you at rest in your salary or in God's sovereignty? Are you able to sleep at night because of the comfortability of your comforter set or because of the comfort of the comforter and the cross? Notice what else Jesus does here. As we gaze upon the way Jesus takes, we know that Jesus refused to let culture detour him on God's mission. Jesus refused to let culture detour him on God's mission. We see this in verse 4. Verse 4, you may want to underline it. I believe it's the crux of the whole passage. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Now, friends, to notice the tension in the text, you have to know the background of Samaria. At one point, Samaria used to be this capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. It was a place of religious prestige to the Israelites. However, when Israel was in exile, uh, there came a degradation of the spiritual climate there in Samaria. And they were defeated and they were taken from their land. Foreigners settled in their land and mixed with the remaining remnant there. And it came to a point where the people could no longer distinguish the Israelites from the foreigners. And as a result, you had Samaritans. Now, God gave out judgment because of this, not because they were mixed in their race, but they were mixed in their religion. As the Israelites began to marry the other foreigners, they would take on their gods and forsake Yahweh. You may want to write this down in your quiet time, but the demonstration of the judges' judgment is in 2 Kings chapter 17. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, God sends lions into the land to devour the people to demonstrate his judgment. Friends, that's right. Simba and Mufasa dish out the judgment of God. And now there's this historic religious tension between the Samaritans and the Jews, which would have been the race of Jesus. This tension is real. Jews insisted that Jerusalem was a proper place to worship. Samaritans believed it was Gerizim. The tension got so bad that throughout history, a Jewish king would destroy the Samaritan temple. Centuries later, the Samaritans would retaliate and desecrate the Jewish temple with dead corpses, dragging them into the temple, making it unclean. And as a result, Samaritans would be banned permanently from the temple. Now that's a real rivalry if I've ever seen one. Friends, that's not merely just Gators versus Bulldogs rivalry. It's not merely just Celtics versus Lakers or the Patriots and whoever else they play. This is Israel versus Iran. This is Bloods and crypts. This is blood to be had. So consider how drastic it is, friends, that Jesus says in this text, he has to pass through Samaria. Now, scholars tell us that there are actually other routes Jesus could have taken to get to his next destination, but it says in this text he has to go there. This would have been like a person, African-American, during the civil rights movement, going to a sundown town, doing door-to-door evangelism, drinking from white-only fountains. The danger is supreme here. Historians like Josephus tell us that Jews could have been heckled and even physically harmed on this route. But it tells us in this text, Jesus had to go there. Friends, at LifePoint, and at Smyrna, Tennessee, maybe in Nashville. I want to ask you, where is your Samaria? Know that As gospel-centered Christians, we often need to focus more on the work Jesus has done for us instead of thinking about the work we have done for Jesus. But this would be a good point for us to write in the margin of our text, WWJD, what would Jesus do if he was living in Tennessee? Where would he go? Where would Jesus pause so that he can minister to the people who are lost and left out in need of his saving grace? Listen, you don't go to Samaria. You clutch your purse a little tighter when you're in Samaria. Uh, You lock your doors and keep your eyes straight at the stoplight when you're in Samaria. You don't pull out your wallet and count your cash when you're in Samaria. This is not a place you would want to go, but Jesus goes and he ministers there. Why? Because Jesus had to cross the barrier of heaven to earth. Jesus is showing us that when we love people of Samaria, we are demonstrating how God loved us. Then when Jesus loves the unlovable, that love overflows and our love for people who we don't agree with. When we love our Samaria, we show people in the world how Jesus loved us, even though we were sinners in need of his grace, even though we did not deserve God, even though we did not love God, he loved us anyhow. And when we love people like that, they see the beauty of the gospel. So who are the Samaritans that are the sandpaper to your soul? For some of you, maybe it's Democrats or Republicans or those darn libertarians. Maybe it's baby boomers or millennials. Maybe it's people from another race. Maybe for you, it's white people, black people, people from another community that have a disagreement with you. These are people that you unfriend on Facebook, that you don't invite to the wedding. And God says that you are called to love those people because when you love them, you mirror his love for us you face the hypocrisy of your own sin. When you go to Samaria, you understand that you're unlovable, but God loved you. Which actually brings us to our second scene here is the woman. The woman at the well. We only need to see how Jesus engages this woman to see how actually scandalous this particular passage is. In verse 6, it says Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the six hour noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now we know why this woman is considered the bad Samaritan. The time she goes to the well actually tells us a lot about her character. She goes at noon. It's a point where the sun is actually the highest and the hottest during the day. Back then in the ancient Near East for a woman to go and draw water would usually be early in the morning before the sun had risen at all so that they could avoid the scorching heat making their long and weighty journey less tedious. This woman goes at noon, which tells us that she is avoiding the crowd. The women during this day and age would have risen early in the morning to beat the scorching heat. At this time, they were home watching days of our lives. Not this woman. She's an outcast. She's known by her sin. She is known by her brokenness. She is known by the darkness that surrounds her life. And this would have been a scandal for Jesus to talk to a woman with this reputation. It would have been a scandal for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan. It would have been a scandal for a rabbi or a religious teacher to talk to this woman in isolation. And yet Jesus does it. Her reputation is actually made even more clear here. Drop down to verse 16, and in verse 16, they strike up a conversation. Jesus says to her, go and call your husband. Come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. All of a sudden, this biblical story turns into an episode of Maury, Uh, The lie detector determines that was a lie. Shows that this woman is in a cycle of broken relationships, one after another, and Jesus doesn't merely give her a lie detector test. He gives her an x-ray of her heart. Now, how would you respond? Would you imagine on this streaming broadcast that a pastor or a prophet begins to detail an explicit description all of your private sins. People know about your worst imaginations and your hidden actions. Some of us would be infuriated. Other of, others of us would try to defend ourselves or hide our sin. But notice this woman actually does what many of us do when we're exposed in our own sin. In verse 20, look what this woman does. Something that's ironic, but actually is so true to our nature. Verse 20, it says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said there in verse 21, Woman, believe me that the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. What's happening here? This woman, listen to me, deflects to religion automatically. She's exposed in her sin. Her heart has been demonstrated as broken and and stuck in lust. She's been looking for love in all the wrong places. Jesus sees her reputation and her darkness, and now she reflects to religion to try to make up a covering for herself. At least I can find righteousness or self-righteousness in the fact that Samaritans worship in the right place. And because we worship in the right place, I have some right standing with God. Now, you may not appeal to that, but many of us would appeal to our Small group attendance, maybe to our witnessing or evangelism or our service in our church, or maybe we appeal to how well we can hide our sins. We all have this self-made religion in which we hide behind, hoping that God loves the filtered us instead of the real us. And God wants you to see we are the women at the well. That we're broken, we're thirsty, and no amount of religion can save us. No amount of religion will quench our thirst. That's why Jesus tells her that there's coming a time where they will have to worship him in spirit and in truth and not merely a religion that tries to build a bridge up to God. But we have to believe the gospel, that Jesus came and lived the life we should have lived, that he died the death we should have died, that he took our sins, he he gave us his righteousness, and that's the only way we can worship him. And therefore, we are forgiven. We don't have to appeal to religion. There's a religious festival known as Mela. It's a 55-day Hindu festival during which devotees bathe for the forgiveness of their sins in the point of three rivers, the Ganges, the Yamana, and the mythical Sarasvati. It's one of the largest festivals in the human gatherings on earth uh, occurring every 12 months. Listen to this. More than 40 million people gathered in 2001. An estimated 30 million people visited the festival in 2013. And it's ironic that people of the Hindu religion wash in the Ganges River for spiritual cleansing because it ranks as the top five most polluted rivers on the planet. As they try to wash themselves of their sins, the irony is that many of them contract dysentery, cholera, hepatitis, and severe diarrhea, cha-cha-cha. I mean, seriously, that sounds like a bad Pepto-Bismol commercial. It shows us one point. Religion is too dirty to wash away our sins. Stark contrast, the Bible points us to the pure blood of Jesus for spiritual cleansing. He he never sinned. He was spotless. Therefore, he's able to wash away our sins. In other words, religion is too dirty to wash away our sins. What can wash away my sins? What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. See, religion says, I obey. Therefore, I'm accepted. But the gospel says, I'm accepted. Therefore, I obey. The motivation of religion says that you follow and are obedient because it's based on fear and insecurity. But the gospel says it's based on grateful joy because we could not save ourselves, but Jesus saved us. Now, this woman's thirsty. She's been looking for love in all the wrong places. She's been drinking from other wells. Life point. maybe the guests that are streaming, believer, non-believer, The truth is we're all tempted to drink from the other wells of this world. Some of us drink from the well of popularity. Others drink from the well of pleasure. Some of us are drinking from the well of success. But actually the wells of this world are nothing but salt water that makes us thirstier and will lead to our demise. So Jesus tells us to drink from him because he is the only pure water that will quench our thirst and give our hearts rest. This woman hears about this thirst and this quenching that comes from Jesus. She sees that Jesus gives a value to her, her her womanhood, being able to speak to her. She sees that Jesus gives value to her humanity, willing to drink for her. But even more so, Jesus gives value to her as a daughter of God, willing to give her this Water, which leads me to the last scene here, the witness. Her heart is healed and moves us to the hardest places. And here's where this woman goes. Verse 27 says, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Verse 28, so the woman left her water jar and went away into a a town to, to the people Verse 29, come see a man, told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of that town and were coming to him. Drop down to verse 39. Verse 39, it says, many Samaritans from that town believed him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Here we see this bad woman in a bad situation being healed with two words, good news. And it sends us us and her to the hardest place. She goes back to town. You know why that was hard for her? Because everybody already knows who she is. I mean, as soon as she crosses the city limits of Sychar, you can hear the rumor mill engine begin to rev up. She's walking down the street looking for people to tell about this good news. You can see shades and blinds close. You can hear doors lock. You can hear text messages ring on people's phones. You can hear women cry out to the husbands, honey, get away from that door. I don't want you looking at that woman at the well. You know what she's about, you know what she does. And even in spite of her reputation, in spite of the ridicule, and in spite of her shame and her guilt, she has this love of being fully known and fully loved by God. She's fully known in her sin, she's fully known in the darkness, she's fully known in her brokenness, but she's loved by God anyway, not because of what she's done, but because of what Jesus will do for her. That sends her to say to people, come see a man that freed me. Come see a man that liberated me. Come see a man that knows my past, but gave me a future. Come see a man that knows the storm but gave me peace. Come see a man that knows my sickness but gave me healing. Come see a man that knows my my brokenness but gave me wholeness. Come see a man that knows my financial situation but there's more riches in him than I will ever need. I follow him not because I want a better life but because he's better than life himself. So she goes. Now, life point, the question that remains for you. Where will you go with this good news? I pray that when we regather and we start being sent back and catapulted back into this new normal, that we would take this good news of our lives and we would be like the telemachus of our society, of our state, and of our region. We would say, in the locker room, come see a man. At the cubicle, come see a man. At the family gathering, come see a man. And the gospel would be at the tip of our tongues Because Jesus is at the core of our hearts. There's a story of an African prince that came over to America in the new age when America was newly discovered. And as him and his business partner steps onto American soil, they see something very peculiar. There's a naked African-American woman standing on a wooden platform surrounded by several other white men that were yelling numbers at her. This African prince was uh, just incensed with this anger and he was mad at what he was seeing. So he turns to his business partner and he says, what in the world is happening here? His business partner says, well, your highness, this is part of the newfound prosperity in this land. They are selling this woman into slavery and they only view her as a, a piece of property. Angered, this young African prince would start yelling out numbers, not even knowing what he's doing, outbidding one slave master after another slave master. And this beautiful African woman comes up to him and and with tears running down her eyes, she says, sir, I have been a master for many years. I will be a good slave for you. To which the young African prince responds, I didn't buy you to serve me. I bought you so you would be free. And with an intensified Stream of tears running down her cheeks. She then responds, well then, good sir, I don't merely want to serve you. I want to be like you. Friends, that's the story of the gospel that Jesus came over into our sin-sick world and saw us on the slave blocks being sold into slavery to sin, Satan, and death. But Jesus didn't merely buy us with money. He purchased us with his own life that we might be reconciled back to God and he would die and be resurrected with all power. And we look Jesus in the eyes and say, sir, I'm not merely a slave that will serve you, but I want to reflect you and I want to be like you because Once you've been saved by the hero, you will reflect the hero. Life point, may I encourage you to drink from the well that never runs dry. The moment you begin to drink from this gospel good news of Jesus and how he fully knows us and fully loves us, it will heal the deepest hurts in our hearts, but it will send us to the hardest places. That's good news. Father I thank you for my friends who are listening and streaming and I pray Father that they will take this good news and rise to the occasion of this crisis to proclaim Jesus to the hardest places we know in Christ's name we pray